Hello and welcome to another edition of Maine ASCD, the podcast, the podcast where we discuss whole child education and its tenets of healthy, safe, engaged, supported, and challenged. As you settle in and get cozy and ready to listen to the podcast, please go ahead and click that subscribe button if you haven't already, and that way you'll make sure you never miss a new edition of Maine ASCD, the podcast. I'm your host today, Dr. Lee Alley, the Executive Director of Maine ASCD, and joining us in the pod is Zoe Weil, the co-founder and president of the Institute for Humane Education, here to talk with us about her work, the work of IHE, and of course, crosswalks between that work and our own work, the work of the whole child. We hope you'll enjoy the content of today's podcast, but more than that, we hope that you'll engage with us in a dialogue around that content. So once you've listened, please reach out and talk back via any of our social media channels, via the web website. We are looking forward to continuing the conversation with you. So without further delay, here's the podcast. Hi, Zoe. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Lee. I'm excited to be here. It's such a privilege for us that you are joining us on Maine ASCD, the podcast. We like to talk about the mission of the whole child and its tenets, healthy, safe, engaged, supported, and challenged. And in addition to talking about those things, both with members of the board and members of our body, we like to invite on guests to talk about the mission of their organizations, agencies, outreach efforts, and how those crosswalk to ours. And so it's really exciting to have you here to talk about IHE, the mission of IHE, your philosophy and those sorts of things. And so as we sort of get into it, do you want to talk a little bit about your philosophy and sort of, you know, what what became the impetus for IHE and its evolution over time? Sure. I think I'll start with that first. What became the impetus? Because it leads to my philosophy of education. So many, many years ago, over 30 years ago, I was looking for a summer job and I found a program at the University of Pennsylvania which offered week-long courses to middle school students. And I was passionate about real-world issues that related to our future and to justice and to compassion in the world. And I offered a couple of courses. One was on environmental issues, one was on animal issues. And what was amazing to me is in these week-long courses, these young people were transformed by learning about real-world issues and wanting to make a difference. There was one boy, 12-year-old boy, who after learning about an issue, went home that night and made his own homemade leaflets. And this was in 1987, so he didn't have a computer. He literally hand-wrote his leaflets. And he came into class. I know. (laughs) And he wanted... It's, it's really quite something to think that in just a moment, a child can come alive and change and want to so change true. the world. And so he came back into class the next morning with his little stack of leaflets, which he wanted to hand out, but not to his fellow classmates. He wanted to hand them out on a Philadelphia street corner during lunch, and so that's what he did. And to me, that was an example of somebody becoming a change maker overnight. And I, I still know some of the kids who were in that week-long course. I've stayed in touch with two of them. And many years later, I, I had the opportunity to um, speak in an event with Jane Goodall in New York City. And this young man, who was one of these students in this class, also 12 years old when I taught him, 
he uh, was now working for the mayor of New York on HIV-AIDS issues. And I invited him to come to this event, and I introduced him to people afterwards. And he, I, I said, this was David, and he was in the very first humane education course I ever taught. And before I could finish my sentence, he interjected, that course changed my life. And, of course, uh. it changed my life as well because it was when I realized the power of education to transform young people. And I ended up creating a, a program, an educational program at a nonprofit organization where I went into schools and I gave talks and assembly programs and led after-school classes. And I was reaching about 10,000 students a year, which sounds like a lot, but it mm. was, you know, that's a drop in the bucket. And when I say reaching them, it might have been with a single assembly program. So nothing that was um, integrated into the curriculum and integrated right. into their everyday lives. And I realized, because so many of those kids, when they learned about these issues, they wanted to start school clubs. And so then I would mentor their school clubs. And, and I realized that they just, they desperately wanted their education to be relevant to the real world and to the things that they felt passionately about. And Absolutely. so in all of those years of doing that, um, I, I came to realize that humane education, which is education about real world interconnected issues that cover human rights and social justice issues and environmental preservation and animal protection, that these issues, they needed to be integrated into schools. And so... That led me to co-found the Institute for Humane Education, IHE, in order to help schools and educators to bring these issues into the classroom. And sort of that leads into your first question about my philosophy of education. You know, for many, many years, we would hear this buzz phrase about how we need to prepare students to compete in the global economy. And, you know, I heard it in the media. I heard it from politicians. I didn't actually think that it was the mission of the United States Department of Education. I just thought mm. it was something that was being said until I looked up the mission and found that, indeed, the mission is to prepare students for global competitiveness. And I don't think there's anything wrong with being prepared for global competitiveness. It's not that you know, that's an inherent wrong. It's that it's not good enough. You know, we have a world in which there are, you know, billion people who are living in poverty, and we're in the midst of the sixth great extinction, and we're facing climate change, and we're facing, you know, growing um, nationalism and, and um, xenophobia and other kinds of prejudices mm -hmm. at the same time as we are also seeing massive progress in the world in terms of girls getting an education and in terms of uh, people having rights that they never had before. And so when I think about the progress that we've already made and then I think about what the world most needs, it needs young people who are passionately engaged, who have the skills to address real-world problems and the desire to do so, and who have the collaborative abilities and the listening skills and the communication skills to work together so that we can create a just, peaceful, and sustainable world. 
And that's where I think we should be heading, and that's what I think our mission should be, and that's what my philosophy is. And if I put it into a single word, it's to prepare students to be solutionaries for a better future. I love that, So, and I'd love to talk with you a little bit further about that definition of solutionary and some of your programs in a moment. So much of what you talked about speaks to me so deeply. You know, in the interest of transparency, I've shared with folks before, I am involved with IHE. Obviously, I was involved in that instructional design piece for the Solutionary Online Program not so long ago, and, and I'm now a member of that advisory council, and I found you serendipitously years back because I had a frustration with the trajectory I sort of saw education taking and I had just sort of said aloud in that frustration, you know, there has to be a more humane way than this. And then when I had said aloud the word humane education, I thought that must really exist and then found you in my neighboring county through that Google search. And I just thought that was just such a serendipitous wink of the universe that I found you. And, um, you know, it's such, a, it's such a great privilege and honor to know you and work so closely with you. Listening to you talk, though, you know, you and I have spoken in the past about one of my educational icons, Parker Palmer, and he always said competition is the antithesis of community. And I think that's so true. And so one of the things that impresses me about the work that you do is that you just underscore that community and as you say, the interconnectedness of all things. I love what you shared in that anecdote about that first solutionary that you fostered because that integration piece just resounds with our mission of the whole child. One of the things I like to say to my board is you can't separate the who, you know, the self from the teaching and learning endeavor, that who is the paramount question of education. And it's it's not just about those needs in terms of the healthy, safe, engaged, supported, and challenged. It's how do we prepare those learners then to turn around and ensure that same safety, that same helpfulness, all of those same things for the people that are, you know, under the umbrella of their responsibility and the interconnectedness of all things certainly is. Can you talk to me a little bit, Zoe, about the wonderful programs of IHE? You have so much happening there that, that I'd love for our listeners to learn about. Sure. Thank you. Um, and I love that story so much about how you found us. You know, it really know. did feel like the universe brought us together. Uh, um, it certainly does to me. Uh, so, you know, initially in, in co-founding the organization in 1996, the, we had a, a three sort of the three legs to a stool. We wanted to promote the concept of humane education. We wanted to prepare teachers to be humane educators who could integrate real-world issues into the curriculum. And we also wanted to deliver humane education to students. And Mm -hmm. we really focused on the first two, promoting the field, growing the field, um, helping people to understand what it is, and preparing teachers to be humane educators. So... In, in preparing teachers to be humane educators, we created the first graduate programs in the United States that were focused on, on uh, humane education, that were actual specialties in humane education. So we are affiliated with Antioch University, New England, and our graduate programs are online. We have a Master of Education, a Master of Arts, 
uh, graduate certificate program, and in the summer we're going to be a specialization within an EDD program and hopefully also a PhD program as well. So that's sort of the highest level of training that we offer. And then we began uh, offering workshops around the U.S. and Canada and sometimes overseas as well. And then once the Internet was, uh, became what it was, we began offering online courses uh, to teachers and also to activists. And um, the final thing we did to, be really, to really be able to reach everybody was to create a resource center on our website. And our website is humaneeducation.org. And that does have two E's in the middle. Um, and our, our, we have a resource center with hundreds of free downloadable uh, resources, including, and I'm really excited about our most recent resource, which is a solutionary guidebook for educators. And this provides a, a really a step-by-step -step process for educators to bring solutionary thinking and solutionary action into their classroom and into their curriculum, and it's free. So anybody can go to our website, humaneeducation.org, and uh, just follow the menu to the Solutionary Guidebook and just download it and use it. And we're really, really excited that Maine teachers are going to be able to use, um, use this guidebook. I'm so, so excited about the guidebook, too, because I've had that you know, I've had eyes on it for quite a while before it was launched in the format it now takes. Can you talk a little bit about the guidebook, a little a little further rather about the guidebook, though? So what are educators going to find in those pages? This is such a work of heart for you, and I'd love for you to elaborate a little bit. I think there's a lot of interest and need for this guidebook, and that it's free obviously speaks to that mission that education should be free. So, so what will they find when they open those pages? So the first um, section of the guidebook is really the rationale for educating in this way, where we're making education real-world focused, and we are integrating real-world issues into whatever content areas that we're teaching. And then the next and the bulk uh, section of the guidebook is a 14-step process for becoming a solutionary. And it uses a problem and it, it takes a step-by-step -step approach for becoming a critical thinker and a researcher and a strategic thinker and a systems thinker. The, the challenge that we have in solving problems is, first of all, we often don't even approach the problem trying to solve it. We often approach the problem putting a Band-Aid on it. And that Absolutely. is especially true with kids and schools. So we may have, we may require community service for students. And I, don't get me wrong, I think community service is really important, and I think humanitarian efforts are critical in a world in which we have to help others and we have to help our neighbors. And yet, if our only focus is, is on humanitarian interventions and we're not actually trying to solve the, the problem at its causal level, then we're going to just be, you know, we're, we're going to be taking food to food pantries forever mm -hmm. instead mm -hmm. of making sure that nobody goes hungry because they have the means 
to live out of poverty. And that is what we have to cha- what we have to challenge kids to think about. How do we end poverty? Not just right. how do we, you know, bring more cans to the food pantry or right. how do we end pollution rather than do another beach cleanup? So that's Yes, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to well, say that's so so powerful and it speaks to a conversation that we've been having too about other types of education. I just recorded a a podcast not long ago about social emotional learning. And so often in addition to this band-aid approach, as you call it, which is so true though, we also treat these kinds of programs as add-ons. And so a club approach is okay if it's the only way you can introduce this to a school culture, but to change something, it has to become truly systemic. And that's what I love about the solutionary program is that, you're really getting into that systems thinking, design thinking, those sorts of things that are really transformative. Otherwise, it's always going to be a supplement. It's never going to supplant what we're doing. And and so I think that's important to underscore because you're imagining a new way of, you know, viewing these, as you say, the root causes, not just the symptoms of the disease, but the disease itself. Yes. And so to to truly be a solutionary, you not only need to look at the systemic and root causes of a problem and see how they're all connected, but the next thing that you need to do is to try and devise solutions that won't have unintended negative consequences to one group while helping another group. And that happens all the time. So in the guidebook, the there's a, a constant refrain that how can our solutions be good for all people and for other species and for the environment that sustains us so that we're not pitting the environment against people which we see so often and Mm -hmm. the other thing that solutionaries learn to do which is just so critical in these very polarized times is that they learn to work together it's fine to have different perspectives on issues and problems, but instead of fighting each other, which is often the debate format that we use in schools is, you know, we take two sides, we take an issue, we say that there are two sides of the issue as if there are only two sides, you know, we, there's so many different perspectives, but we make two arbitrary sides. And then we tell students research and argue and win for your side. Instead, imagine if we took the same problem and we said to kids with different perspectives, different political beliefs, whatever, different religious beliefs, how can we solve this problem in ways that are good for everybody? And let's work together and let's find all the stakeholders who, have, who are affected by this problem. And that includes other species in the environment who may be affected by this problem. And right. obviously we can't ask a tree how you're affected, but we can see and research the impacts. And then we try and solve that problem. And it's not easy. It's not as if we are always going to have perfect solutions. But the philosophy that um, undergirds all of this work is how can we do the most good and the least harm to people, animals, and the environment? So it's not how can we do all good and no harm, which is not possible, but how can we do the most good and the least harm? And I have asked thousands and thousands of people, if they think that doing the most good and the least harm is a good philosophy by which to live. And everybody says yes. Nobody says that that's not a good philosophy by which to live. So the question is, 
you know, it's really like the golden rule, but it's the golden rule in a globalized world in which our everyday choices impact people and the environment and other species around the globe. So how do we do that? That's the question, and solutionaries seek to answer it. And imagine the kind of community that gets built when students collaborate on solving a problem. Imagine the, the ways, of the complexity of thinking, the systems thinking, design thinking, as you mentioned, strategic thinking, creative thinking that comes into play. I mean, these are the real skills kids need. You know, the Absolutely. content that we offer is so arbitrary when you think about, you know, how content is available in everybody's pockets these days on a cell phone, but what's not what you can't get on your cell phone is you can't hone your critical and systems thinking. You need mm-hmm. communities and great teachers for that. Absolutely, and it speaks to the power of problem-based learning, and and you know we know the power of that. I I one of the things I love, which as you've imagined, you know what how does IE evolve in the future? One of the things that I loved that you did in years past was that solutionary summit where that was really on display, the strength of that model. Could you talk a little bit about what happened at those solutionary summits for learners sure. and the process so, leading up to that? Yes. So um, we have been piloting. We piloted a, a solutionary program um, for two years in the state of Maine where we were working with six to eight schools each year and working with those teachers who were bringing these concepts to their students and we had two culminating solutionary summits at the end of the year, both held at the University of Southern Maine, and students from the different schools that participated were selected based on the solutions that they came up with in the solutionary program, and they presented their solutions in this public forum. And, you know, my heart just sang watching these students. Some of them, you know, some of the things they said, you know, there was – one group uh, at Deering High School in Portland that was um, working on issues of restorative justice. And what they were seeing is that when, you know, for those kids who were skipping school um, or, you know, doing other infractions, the, the punishment was that they were suspended from school. So they're skipping school and their punishment is to skip more school. And right. the, uh, it just makes no sense. And so what these kids um, did is they worked on creating a restorative justice process, a new policy for the school for, you know, when there were problems. And this one young man, when he was asked, you know, why did you choose this problem? And he just, you know, I, I choked up when I heard him. I don't know if he was choking up as well, but he just said, I just want everyone to succeed. And it was so heartfelt and beautiful. And there were so many moments like that. And um, it, it's, it's a testament to the teachers who brought this to their students and to the power of young people to create change. And, you know, we're seeing that right now with um, a 16-year-old who came out of nowhere in the world, Greta Thunberg, Thunberg um, and her climate strike, you know, this was, you know, a girl who's on the spectrum who was so, so depressed when she learned about climate change. And she, you know, she stopped eating and 
she decided to do something was just have a strike and look what it launched you know millions and millions of kids who care about this issue who had somebody who sparked them enough to say i want to participate and how can we um, encourage youth to participate in all the ways not just protest but all the ways that we need actual solutions to climate change so that some of them are going to grow up to be engineers and some of them are going to grow up to be politicians and some of them are going to grow up to be teachers and they will be able to contribute in different ways to solve problems if they have this mindset and it's been cultivated in school. Absolutely. And I love everything that you just shared. And in addition to that, obviously, that great lens of, of looking at education and then their place in the world as though their own success isn't predicated on someone else's failure. And I think that there's this, I think that there's this very strange feeling oftentimes that I think we inadvertently cultivate because no one would preach that obviously to their children that in order for you to do better someone has to do worse but we treat it as though there's this bucket and there's only so much to dip from when it comes to people's well-being and I mean of course there are inequities but the truth is we all can have each each other's well-being at heart and we all can do well together I don't have to have someone doing poorly in order for me to do well and that's a broken way of viewing. It's that competition again. And yep. I think it's, it's something that's uncomfortable for every educator and every parent, but there hasn't been that remedy offered. How do we move in a different way? And sometimes the problems just seem so insurmountable that folks won't even try. And I think that's why I feel so you know, excited and encouraged about the solutionary program and the other things happening at IHE because you are offering another way and you're offering it in such a way that even and perhaps, you know, ultimately we're inviting those littlest learners to take part in finding those solutions. And I love the way that you give voice to youth. I love the way that IHE empowers youth. I love the way you empower educators to in turn empower youth. I just think that it really does offer an alternative that that folks might have been aware of, but they didn't know how to put into action, and you've done that, and that's so impressive to me, though. Well, thank you, and I just, I love what you just said so much. You know, it it reminded me of when I was in high school, and I I was so grade-focused, and, you know, mm -hmm. I I was often bored out of my mind but did what I had to do to get a good grade. And I remember when um, we had a really, really difficult calculus test and my math teacher said that he graded it on a curve and I was so relieved because that meant that I would get a higher grade in just in comparison with other students. And it was only when I was an adult that I realized what that meant to be graded on a curve. It meant mm. that I didn't actually learn the material, right? I mean, <laughs> if he had to grade it on a curve because we all did that poorly, then we didn't learn right. the material. And right. we were just getting graded in comparison with each other. And that I was thrilled by that because the only thing that was important to me was the grade, and the actual learning was not important. And that is, you know, that little story just sums up everything that is wrong with a system that is based on comparisons to each other and not based on becoming the sort of 
thinker and the creative problem solver and the lifelong learner and the endlessly curious human mm-hmm. being that education should true. spark. Well, we so often conflate achievement with success. And I think that's so dangerous. And if we continue on the path that we're on right now, that success is that, you know, the trophy or the accolade or whatever, we're really setting up our learners to feel like failures in the future. We're not helping them to understand the path to true happiness and true success, which is that ensuring that we all succeed and that our planet is healthy and that our non-human animal friends are taken care of and all of those things. That's the only path to real helpfulness. So would you talk with me a little bit about your publications? I'm especially interested in you talking with our listeners about The World Becomes What You Teach and some of those other pieces that you've authored. Sure. So, yeah, I've written several different books. Um, The World Becomes What We Teach, which is subtitled Educating a Generation of Solutionaries, is my most recent book. And it's written primarily for educators, and it's really short. So my thinking when I wrote this book is I wanted to write a book that a teacher could read in two hours because teachers are so incredibly busy, and I wanted it to provide a vision. And really now with the Solutionary Guidebook, the, the World Becomes What We Teach is the vision with some examples, and the guidebook is, is the operationalizing of the vision and, and offering teachers like, okay, so if you like the vision, this is how you do it. And... Um, So there's that book, and I also wrote a book called Most Good, Least Harm, and that's that's basically a book about that principle that I mentioned before, like how do we Mm. live in a globalized world, how do we live in a way that does the most good and least harm to each other? And, you know, it's hard enough to do that in relationship with our family and friends and neighbors, but it's really hard to do it when every choice we make impacts others will never see or know. Absolutely. those are just those are two of the books. And I've also written some books for young people, including a book called Claudia Medea, and um, it is a book for middle school students, a little well, more like tweens, and um, and a few others. So if people are interested in my books, they can um, find out about them at our website. Um, again, that's humaneeducation.org. And the other thing that we've just launched, which they'll find on the website, is the Center for Solutionary Change, which we are hoping will be a hub of learning and professional development and sharing and opportunities. And one of the things that we're going to be launching in the spring is a Solutionary YouTube channel so that children who have been doing solutionary work um, because their teachers are bringing it into the classroom or because they're finding it on their own, that they can submit videos that are similar to what the students at the Solutionary Summit presented, sort of presenting their problem and their process for solving it and their ideas for solving it, but doing so in a video format, and we'll be curating that and then putting up on this YouTube channel the most solutionary solutions that the kids come up with. And so this is a way to make this sort of equal opportunity because not every student's going to get the opportunity to attend a summit, but any student can submit a video. I love that. I love that. I love the equity piece too, though. You know how important that is to me serving as rurally as I do and for the, you know, socioeconomic demographic that I serve. That's so important. And it's, it speaks so highly of IHE that you folks are so attuned to that need. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, 
so admiring of your work in Maine and in Washington County. One of the commonalities I really think IHE shares with Maine ASCD is that vision meets action piece. And so when you were just sharing, you know, your your publications and the aims of those, it, it really occurs to me how how fully capable you are of translating theory to practice. And I think that's a really tough thing to do. And so it's one of the things I admired about you and about IHE from the beginning was that it wasn't just this sort of, you know, ideological pie in the sky, unattainable because we can't bring it down to to action steps. It wasn't an approach like that. It was like, here's the ideology, here's the philosophy, and now here's how we actually put that into action. And so I just really admire that, Zoe. It's incredible what you're doing, and it's a privilege to help to get the word out about that. Well, thank you. You know, it's funny. I hadn't ever um, articulated it for myself that way, so thank you for doing that. I appreciate that. In a way, I feel like the work that we do um, here is our solutionary work. So I may not have a solution to all the world's problems. I don't know how to end poverty. I don't know how to stop global climate change. There's so many things I don't know how to just end. I don't have a solution for them. But I do feel like we have a solution for for the problems in education that we encounter decade after decade. So, you know, there are different manifestations of similar problems. I feel like we have a solution for that, and that's what we're trying to offer to teachers and to schools and um, to policymakers. You know, we can shift education. It's not – I don't think that it's, it's that hard to do. Um, it's, it's a big – you know, it, the schooling system is just a huge monolith, so anything that's really big is hard to shift. But the ideas are pretty simple ones that I think – with a few tweaks, we could all get on board. And one of the things I'm really excited about is it's not happening in Maine, unfortunately, but maybe Maine's next or, you know, maybe it'll just take hold in Maine. But San Mateo County, California, has made this solutionary approach the philosophy and framework for the Office of Education and all of their professional development for their 23 school districts and their 113,000 students, which is so exciting. And they're, they're going to hold a solutionary fair in March that is, you know, we've had the solutionary summits in Maine. They're going to hold a, a solutionary fair, and the goal is to potentially replace science fairs with solutionary fairs, which would be I far more equitable because your non-science students, they can all participate. That's so incredible. That's so incredible. I love that. It reminds me of something happening with the Eastern Maine Skippers program, too, where they sort of come together around a common problem and then offer creative solutions to that. And I, I just think there's such power in empowering youth. I, it just gives me sort of chills to think about, though, the effect that you're having on this rising generation. It gives me great, great hope for the future. And I think, you know, part and parcel of that is the holistic approach. I, I wish that more of the, you know, various realms of education took that approach. I'd like to think we do at Maine ASCD and recognizing that we need to be supporting a whole child, that you don't isolate a child in the context of schooling and expect you're going to educate that child to be whole and then take that wholeness and change the world. And um, that's what we're really trying to 
to um, foster at Maine ASCD, and that's why we really wanted to be talking with you about your holistic approach and its change on the world. So, Well, I, I'm just so delighted, and I'm so thankful for your leadership and everything that you're doing at ASCD and in Maine. I'm really um, grateful. Likewise, Zoe. Tell us how we can find you and some other in some other platforms. You're you're with Psychology Today, correct? People could find I, your your teachings there. Yes, I'm a blogger for Psychology Today. So um, if people just look up Zoe Weil um, at Psychology Today, I'll pop right up. And I have a a blog there called Becoming a Solutionary, and that's cross posted to um, our blog at at the Institute for Humane Education. So if anybody goes to our website to get the Solutionary Guidebook, um, you'll you know sign up and you'll automatically then be signed up for our blog and our um, Humane Edge e-newsletter that comes out quarterly. And so people can unsubscribe at any time, of course, but if people want to learn more, read more, see more, get involved, we're here to help in any way that we can. Fabulous. And you have some TED Talks, too, that folks could view on, on YouTube, right? Yes, and they, they'll find them there at, at humaneeducation.org as well. Um, my, I've done six uh, TEDx talks, um, and three of them were in the state of Maine, and uh, one of them is called The World Becomes What You Teach, and that's the one that gives the real introduction to how we educate a generation of solutionaries. I love that. I love that. Well, Zoe, you know how much I appreciate you, how much I value you and the profession and how thankful I am to have you as a friend in this good work. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, I feel the same way, Lee. Thank you so much for having me and keep up your wonderful work. We hope that you enjoyed this episode of Maine ASCD, the podcast. If you'd like to talk back to the folks at the Institute for Humane Education and to Zoe herself, you can find them at humaneeducation.org or on Twitter at Humane Education. And as always, if you'd like to continue the dialogue with us at Maine ASCD, you can find us at maineascd.org or on Twitter at Maine ASCD. Bye for now.